Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Is America's China policy too hawkish? Now, we all know that Democrats and Republicans agree on very little, but there's a rare bipartisan consensus in Washington that China's rise must be countered in the strongest way possible. It often seems that if you want to get something done in Congress, no matter how domestic the issue, just tie it to competition with China and nobody's going to stand in your way. The problem with the tone of the current debate according to Cornell University professor Jessica Chen Weiss, is that policymakers are locked in an escalatory spiral. Basically, anyone who seeks to diverge from the consensus is accused of having sympathy for the other side. And what that means is that the world's two largest economies might be on a dangerous path towards conflict. Weiss is a China specialist. She worked on the State Department's policy planning staff in 2021 and 2022. And since leaving, she has widely published her concerns. She's been cited in FP articles, and she's been the subject of a New Yorker profile. But are her warnings valid? Is she accurately assessing the nature of China's challenge and also what Beijing's intentions actually are? And if she is, how should policymakers adapt? So here's Jessica Chen Weiss. Listen in. Jessica, welcome to FP Live. Thanks so much, Ravi. It's great to have you on. So I thought I'd just begin by laying it all out. What worries you about America's China policy? You said it well. The concern here is that there are really you know two muscles here. One is the kind of outcompete and beat China. And then there is the, what do we stand for? What are we trying to achieve? And in my view, that outcompete and beat China is really dominating our efforts and it is crowding out an affirmative, inclusive vision of the future that we're trying to create. Now, I wanna give the Biden administration credit you know, for its China strategy, which the two first pillars invest at home and align with our allies and partners. Those are an essential component of success. But I think compete here, which is the third pillar, you know, really needs to be um, a little bit more work here, or I think it's going to veer, uh, continue to veer toward conflict and will continue to play strain on the international order and, and ultimately potentially erode U.S. leadership of that order. So it's good that the Biden administration in the United States is no longer trying to transform China. That is, as Jay Sullivan said, I mean, that's impractical and, and likely counterproductive. But competition as a framework is silent on what it is that we are competing for and what is in and out of bounds as we try to compete. It means we're frequently reactive. It means we're frequently uh, you know, having trouble prioritizing you know, which of the many things that one could react to is a real uh, threat and needs to be addressed. And it means that you know, if you want to, to accomplish anything, whether you're a politician or a bureaucrat, you tend to frame it in 
terms of countering or competing with China. And that creates incentives to just get ever more hawkish uh, rather than carefully assessing kind of the shape of the challenge and the costs and benefits of different policy responses. Mm. Um, I have more questions on that, but how did we get here? Uh, China's rise isn't new. The trend you're describing, we could say it began at some point during the Trump administration, but how did it become this bipartisan through line across governments? Well, I'd say it really began under the Obama administration as China became much more aggressive abroad and repressive at home. And that occasioned a, kind of the beginnings of this rebalance in the U.S. foreign policy, more towards deterrence uh, and you know remaining engaged, but nonetheless uh, increasingly hedging against a more aggressive China. But it was really under the Trump administration that the, the U.S. assessment became especially extreme with you know, words like the U.S. feeling that it was being raped by China and that this was an existential struggle that really, I think, changed the terms uh, of the conversation and made it very difficult in the context of our uh, polarized politics uh, for when the Biden administration came into office, had very little space that they felt that they could uh, take to even, you know, undo some of the more, I would say, kind of counterproductive uh, measures that the Trump administration had put in place, because that would be potentially opening up the Biden administration to being seen as uh, unnecessarily soft uh, on China and make it harder to do things like get key uh, nominees confirmed. Now, I, I just want to distinguish between policy and rhetoric here. So both are fairly heated right now. We know that Trump said the Chinese are raping America, as you said, Biden calls Xi Jinping a thug. Although one could argue that this administration has taken, uh, you know, a more sober, uh, a sort of rhetorical kind of perspective than the previous one. But then the policies on both sides are also designed to hurt. Which of the two matter more, policy or rhetoric? That's a great question. And I think both contribute. Both matter a lot um, because the rhetoric is oftentimes what the other side uses to point to as evidence of a much more hostile intent, even if the actions may or may not keep pace uh, with those threats. But then the behavior, of course, um, you know, is ultimately what I think both sides look to, to see whether the threats, but also the assurances of the other side, whether or not, in fact, those are credible. And so one of the concerns here is that even though there is uh, you know, relatively reassuring rhetoric. I mentioned one where the United States, you know, says that it's not trying to transform China or, uh, you know, Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh, states that China remains committed to peaceful, uh, quote unquote, peaceful reunification with Taiwan. Both sides, uh, you know, in this atmosphere of intense distrust, uh, look toward the preparations that the each other side is taking, whether that's to to stand on principle or to prepare for a potential conflict and sees that as evidence and a determination uh, to use those capabilities for ill. Mm. You know, so earlier you said that there were by, uh, there, there were policies that the Trump administration put in place that were counterproductive. Just talk to us a little bit about which policies these are and why they're counterproductive. Well, you could give a couple of different examples. I think the tariffs uh, are one such example, you know, hurting American consumers and businesses as much as they are uh, helping. They don't seem to be moving the needle in terms of China's economic practices that we, you know, continue to find objectionable. You know, another, I think, area where I'm very concerned is the efforts to uh, protect research security and 
um, look at all uh, potential, uh, you know, students and, and scholars as potential spies. I mean, that was the language of the of the previous administration. Even though the policies were a little bit more targeted to screen for potential ties to uh, entities that had uh, contact with the, you know, or affiliation with the Chinese uh, military. The Biden administration has changed that language. It's no longer the China Initiative. Um, but talking with, uh, you know, Chinese American or American uh, scholars uh, of Chinese uh, origin or descent. Um, today, even though the China Initiative has been relabeled, the I think it's called the Countering Threats from Nation States, that nonetheless they feel that the climate is worse, that the Biden administration is, um, you know, just as determined, if not more, to, to prosecute. Um, and that's creating a broader chilling effect here that we, I, I think, are not not yet seized the opportunity to reverse some of the damage to our ability to attract and retain a talent from around the world. And that's not just a talent from China. Um, you know, a survey by the American Physical Society found that something like 40% of uh, international uh, scientists or early career uh, graduate students here in the United States are, don't think that the United States is welcoming uh, and are less likely to stay here long-term because of uh, US policies uh, on research security. Mm. So um, Jessica, you've you know been making these arguments now for several months uh, since leaving government and they've been widely published uh, in newspapers and magazines. Uh, you've been cited in foreign policy articles, of course. One of the sort of critiques uh, of your analysis or the questions it poses is what about Chinese agency here? So, Several China scholars will say that there simply isn't a basis for cooperation um, because there's no evidence uh, that Beijing wants to reciprocate. So how do you respond to that pushback on some of the things you've been arguing? So I'd have two ways of responding to that. The first is that we have to try because the alternative is to take an increasingly fatalistic attitude toward the possibility of a crisis or conflict that would devastate the global economy, probably lead to the deaths of you know many on the island of, of Taiwan, where there are 23 million there. That and of course you know tens of thousands of casualties on both sides. And so you know to my mind, there's no substitute for trying. And the second I would say is that yes, it's hard to find. Uh, evidence uh, on the Chinese side of, of this intention uh, to reciprocate. But you might also, from Beijing's perspective, look at the United States and say they see very little evidence that there's anybody in the United States uh, that's you know interested in allowing China to uh, you know become, in their words, you know, a kind of respected equal of the United States on the world stage. And so to my mind, this is a problem that requires you know thoughtful people to put forward, um, and test the proposition uh, that there could emerge, uh, you know, signs of a more potentially moderate uh, foreign policy on the part of Beijing. We, uh, there's, you know, it's not going to be. This is not about accommodating, um, you know, China. This is about finding ways reciprocally uh, to reduce tensions in ways that wouldn't require, you know, either side to fundamentally make uh, concessions or even relinquish the competition for decades to come. But the current trajectory. Uh, that we are collectively on, it serves nobody's uh, interest. It is only uh, raising the temperature and bringing forward a potentially avoidable crisis. Um, later in this interview, I'd like to get to what an alternative U.S. 
China policy should look like. But let's put a, a pin in that for a second, because I want to continue on on how the Chinese view American policy. Do they have a nuanced understanding of the shifts you've been describing from the Obama presidency through the Trump years now to Biden? Do they have an appreciation for the spectrum of the debate, which I know you're trying to broaden and, and bring in new voices uh, on the moderate side? But is it your sense that they see how nuanced that debate is here as well? I think it's something that they do track. And of course, you know, there's, I think, uh, a tendency to privilege the most extreme voices on both sides that they tend to cite one another and underweight those who take a more moderate, less zero-sum approach. But I do think that there is a widespread recognition that in China, that the domestic politics uh, in the United States is leading to this sort of increased, uh, you know, tendency to stand tough against Beijing. And part of that uh, then also leads to kind of unconditional support for Taiwan. And that's one of the more, I think, dangerous dynamics that we are seeing here today um, is a focus on, on that, which is a principled position, but nonetheless is you know, eroding what has you know, served as stabilizing uh, in the Taiwan Strait for decades, which is that one China policy, this um, you know, policy that's allowed Taiwan to really flourish and prosper in the context of a pretty uh, vague uh, you know, status quo. And I will say, though, Ravi, that there are voices uh, in China. They're just not often heard from, or rather that when they speak out, they are quickly you know, marginalized uh, or muzzled, in part because it doesn't serve uh, the Chinese Communist Party to have these kinds of uh, more moderate voices appearing to undercut this perception of, you know, a, a tough and resolved China that's ready to, to struggle with the United States uh, you know, but struggle for what? Struggle to coexist. I think that's part of the challenge here is creating an environment in which dissent on either side or moderate views, debate on both sides, um, doesn't seem, uh, you know, doesn't come at the cost of, you know, perceived resolve. Uh, and once the relationship becomes increasingly adversarial, I think you're going to continue to see that dynamic uh, crowd out uh, voices who would offer if not more moderate viewpoints, at least question the most extreme uh, pronouncements. I mean, we heard, uh, for example, uh, Representative Mike Gallagher say at the opening hearing of the select committee, you know, he, of course he described this as an existential struggle and that the CC posed a, you know, a threat to life as we know it in the 21st century. And that's fine. But then he also said the CCP is counting on its friends in the United States to push back against their efforts. And to my mind, that is creating a framework uh, in which anybody who wants to engage in the more kind of rational, measured uh, debate over China's intentions and U.S. policy responses uh, is likely to be smeared uh, or marginalized as somebody who is, you know, sympathetic uh, to the CCP. Have you found yourself to be smeared at all over the last few months in, in the way you're describing? Well, Twitter is, of course, you know, <laughs> filled with multitudes. And, and so I don't, but, but, but frankly, I've been you know, gladdened, frankly, that that this has been an area in which I've, you know, so far at least, you know, today could be the day, um, you know, that I've been managed to keep this, uh, you know, conversation really about the merits of, of the policy response to what is really a, a significant challenge. You know, I, you know, I'm under no illusion, um, you know, that the Chinese Communist Party is other than an authoritarian regime that's, you know, done really bad things at home and and would, is using increasingly aggressive tactics abroad. So, you know, from the get-go, acknowledging those things, I think, also helps 
you know, differentiate somebody like me or others in this space um, from seen as somebody who's, you know, doing the kind of propaganda work of the CCP. Hmm. You know, I've gotten so many terrific questions from our subscribers, and I want to ask one of them because it's sort of, it made me stop and think, and this one's from Matthew Kendrick, who wants to pose the question used in the title of this discussion, but with inverse framing. So is China too consumed by competition with the United States? That's a great question. And I think it is. I think it is also uh, one of the problems of the dynamic um, that we described is that each side is increasingly engaged in going around the world, thwarting each other, um, you know, and this is, uh, may it, at the end of the day be, um, you know, aimed at forging some kind of uh, coexistence that avoids conflict. But nonetheless, I think that the burden is on decision makers on both sides of the Pacific to put forward a more fulsome vision of an inclusive order where the, the two sides could, you know, at the end of the day, you know, agree, if not to necessarily share leadership, but nonetheless, um, not necessarily always be uh, engaged in trying to counter or undermine the other. When framed in that in those terms, of course, it's going to bring out you know the worst tendencies on the other side to to react and say, well, no, I'm not going to mm. give anything up. You know, it's all ours. So, uh, are there areas where, again, continuing this uh, theme of flipping the question, are there areas where Beijing perceives threats from the United States that may actually not be that scary? Well, I think the Chinese Communist Party believes that the United States is both intent on containing China, using Taiwan to that effect, and undermining the CCP. And I would say the Biden administration is not intent on uh, undermining the CCP or necessarily using Taiwan to that end. But there are people who are quite outspoken here in the United States, some of whom you know, not too long ago held power and the Trump administration, who I think all three of those you know, would check those boxes. And so it's not paranoia, but we have to look at the balance of voices and what is the current constellation. And I think that right now we do have a window of opportunity with the leadership in the United States and the Biden administration wanting competition without conflict. And where you have in the Chinese uh, leadership, at least currently with you know, in acute domestic problems, I think a genuine interest, at least there was a genuine interest uh, in stabilizing the relationship. Um, that there's plenty to deal with domestically to even if that's just to prepare you know each side for a more long-term uh, competitive uh, relationship that the current uh, escalation this tit for tat kind of spiral that we're in you know serves nobody the challenge here Ravi on both sides is breaking out of the mindset that deterrence is just about threats and threatening punishment it's not just about capabilities and hitting each other as hard as we as they can it's also about making those punishments conditional um, on which implies an assurance that if you know if Washington doesn't escalate or if Beijing doesn't escalate that both sides can expect uh, a better outcome and right now that effort to invest in the credibility of threat I think is coming at the expense of the credibility of those assurances and that is feeding uh, this mm -hmm. cycle and so that's you know on Beijing as much as it is on Washington I think, to make those kind of choices clear. Uh, otherwise, we continue to have this kind of unconditional investment in encountering the other. You are listening to Foreign Policy Live, 
Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, which I use. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. What do other large countries like India or Indonesia or Nigeria think about the U.S.-China relationship right now? I think other countries around the world have been pretty clear in saying that they don't want to choose between the United States and China. And then they worry about a future in which the United States and China are simply measuring success in terms of defeating or getting the best of the other. And that's one of the reasons why I've suggested that the lodestar for U.S. policy has to be what we want rather than uh, what we fear. None of our allies and partners, let alone the rest of the world, uh, you know, want to see this relationship continue to spiral. And so ultimately, if we're to you know, forge um, you know, a broader uh, coalition, we need to ultimately make clear what it is that we are standing for um, because you know, prioritizing just competition and maintaining, as Jake Sullivan said, an absolute rather than a relative lead over China, I think will ultimately introduce more friction between the United States and its allies and partners uh, and the rest of the world. And this framing around the global politics as being a struggle between autocracies and democracies makes it harder to build uh, this more inclusive coalition, including one that tackles challenges that or exist inside of uh, autocracies. You know, governance is something that all uh, leaders can want, regardless of the uh, regime type in which they happen to lead. And I think that that framing also makes it harder to, you know, prevent competition um, from becoming more conflictual, pushing China and Russia, you know, closer together, for example, rather than encouraging limits to their cooperation. Mm. Uh, I've certainly felt that the autocracy, democracy sort of black and white framework is not so effective, especially for countries in the global south, many of which see democracy as more of a spectrum uh, and have leaders who fall, you know, on various points of that spectrum. And so sovereignty is a, a more black and white area that countries can get behind on Russia, Ukraine, but also on Taiwan, which I'd like to come to more specifically now. When you look at how U.S. politicians have been um, sort of talking about Taiwan, uh, when you look at the broader U.S. policy on Taiwan, when you look at the things um, President Joe Biden has said on strategic ambiguity, what's your sense of what's going wrong with the way in which Washington is thinking about the Taiwan issue? No, my sense here is that things are going wrong in part because there's been this uh, premium placed on symbolism over substance and that the belief that to deter Beijing is to from attacking Taiwan is really to not only, you know, marshal the capabilities, but also to, to talk tough, to, to make, to put them on notice, you know, that, that we would be there. And I think the challenge here is that, you know, deterrence, for example, first of all, you know, again, requires more than just threats. It requires credible assurances that we remain committed in the United States to maintaining the status quo. Um, and that, of course, if they escalate, that they, you know, that China would pay a significant costs and that this would not be an easy target. But nonetheless, that if they don't uh, escalate, um, that they don't, they don't need to fear that the United States is, you know, headed inexorably toward, you know, recognizing Taiwan as an independent state. And so here, I think the, you know, what's really crucial to recognize um, is that, you know, it's not just military 
factors that are going to uh, shape Xi Jinping's calculus. There is a healthy dose of what is, you know, the political here. And that, in mm. that context, because Xi Jinping also, you know, despite being, you know, an authoritarian leader, also faces, I think, uh, potentially acute uh, pressure domestically from other elites uh, in the Politburo, but also online and, and in the public, uh, potentially to take decisive measures were, um, you know, the CCP perceived to be uh, on the cusp of losing, quote unquote, losing Taiwan from their perspective. And so it's mm. critical that we deter rather than provoke of Beijing over Taiwan, if we want to maintain um, the peace and stability that has you know, served us all and not least the people of Taiwan for decades. Mm. So let me push you on that. How best should Washington deter Beijing? How do you raise the costs uh, in a way that doesn't lead us to war over Taiwan? So there, and there's across the, the spectrum, I think there are a lot of different things that we are and, and should continue doing. You know, one of those is you know, increasing the resilience of the U.S. military a posture in the region in coordination with allies and partners. It's about increasing Taiwan's resilience to economic coercion, including deepening uh, economic as well as cultural ties to Taiwan so that they don't feel, uh, you know, that there is no choice here, that they have, uh, you know, international support. Um, but that we also be very clear that there are limits here and that the United States uh, would remain uh, willing to accept any outcome that is peacefully and arrived at uh, without coercion, um, because it's that prospect for some eventual uh, evolution that could lead uh, you know, to something that Beijing could call a reunification. That pathway has to exist. Otherwise, there's nothing left in, the, in Beijing's mind other than the military option. And that's what we want to prevent. As, uh, you know, as uh, Ryan Haas and Jude Blanchett wrote, um, you know, the best solution here is no solution. We need to kick the can uh, down the road. And that means, you know, threading this needle uh, in between things that substantively, meaningfully uh, enhance, uh, you know, the resilience of, of Taiwan's defense and its economy to Chinese coercion. But it also means, you know, avoiding things like high profile visits that really make the you know island no safer today than it was before, if anything, the opposite. And you know, polling shows, um, you know, that a majority of our residents on Taiwan recognize that or believe, perceive that Speaker Pelosi's visit, uh, you know, brought more costs uh, to Taiwan's security than it brought benefits. And so we, I think the United States, many want to help Taiwan and to do the right thing here, but we have to be very laser focused, you know, on what will actually uh, move the needle in a productive as opposed to a counterproductive direction rather than just imagining, um, you know, what what would benefit Taiwan, but listening instead to, to what would be useful. But just to be clear here, um, what you're suggesting and proposing here would um, would delay, not prevent uh, a potential war over Taiwan. I don't think that if you you know if you delay something in perpetuity, you have eventually prevent you have effectively uh, prevented it, Ravi. And nobody can tell the future. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we need to just you know get through this you know one day, one month, one year at a time uh, until you know who knows what. And so I think that, you know, politics uh, on all three uh, capitals, Beijing, Taipei and Washington, you know, who can who can predict uh, the future? The most important thing is to make sure that the the, the fundamental recipe uh, for maintaining peace and stability, all those elements, the deterrence both of uh, Beijing, but also the deterrence of, uh, you know, unilateral steps on either side, including on on Taiwan to upset the status quo, that those are uh, prevented. 
you have such a big platform these days. If you could advise policymakers watching this discussion on how to adapt U.S. policy towards China, what would you tell them? I guess I would suggest that we need to stand up a much more, I think, robust mechanism for evaluating, um, you know, the costs to Americans of many of the policies ostensibly designed to protect the United States. And oftentimes, you know, this is sometimes, you know, phrased as you can run faster, but increasingly, I think we're trying to slow Beijing down. And my big concern is that efforts that we are taking to slow Beijing down are slowing ourselves down in the, in the process and slowing down maybe too benign. I think we might be tripping and falling, you know, flat on our face. And so, you know, to me, the most urgent things that we need to do, in addition to all the things we've talked about, is to ensure that the United States remains, you know, committed to being remaining and, and becoming a more inclusive, uh, you know, democracy where diverse voices are heard and respected rather than, a, you know, a place in which we are increasingly so afraid that we hunker down, we squash uh, dissenting views as unpatriotic or disloyal, and we become, you know, we're really a shell of ourselves or, uh, you know, repeat some of the um, abuses of the past, whether when every time, you know, there's been an effort to kind of compete with or, you know, counter an enemy that has been seen as existential, we've ended up uh, undertaking policies here at home from the internment of Japanese Americans to the kind of hate crimes against uh, Muslim and Sikh Americans that have ended up doing more uh, to undermine democracy than the the adversary in the first place. So that to me is the most Im Im important thing that we could do separate from, you know, the importance of continuing to assess very carefully, you know, the extent of, you know, China's intentions, its capabilities and, and the best uh, U.S. policy response. You know, a lot of this on both sides uh, is led by domestic constraints. So, populism on both sides, uh, bellicose kind of rhetoric from politicians on both sides, shifting opinion on both sides among publics. And it seems like when you have a situation like that, you have a chicken and egg where, you know, politicians respond in a certain way because they think they're uh, catering to a base, which then mobilizes uh, and sort of makes the base uh, a little bit more agitated, which then has an impact on what politicians do and so on and so forth. A lot of what you're describing here is what policymakers should be doing. What about the people? Um, how do you think that, you know, public sentiment on both sides could be adapted and changed? Ravi, I think you've described it so well, this kind of self-fulfilling escalatory spiral that we are in, um, where the assessments drive uh, you know, increased fear, which drives increasingly, um, you know, tough rhetoric and, and exaggerated assessments and makes it hard to find a way out, which is one of the reasons why I appreciate so much, you know, you're having this conversation and others like you raising questions about where are we headed. And I think that applies too to people, individuals, you know, when they read alarmist, uh, you know, headlines uh, in the media, at least in the United States, you know, to, to really, to not necessarily uh, take everything that we read at face value to continually question, first of all, the assessment as well as the inevitability uh, of um, the kind of dire trajectory that we're on. Because if we can collectively imagine alternatives, then that creates space for politicians to likewise imagine alternatives. Um, and, you know, the Chinese side is a lot more challenging, of course, because it's an authoritarian state where, you know, as I said, there are, uh, you know, even high level uh, people who have, you know, through internal and external 
uh, channels try to voice concerns about the trajectory uh, that we are on, and they, you know, those views tend to be uh, censored, or even though they oftentimes do go viral before they end up being deleted. You know, here I think the, you know, the question is, can we at least give those, you know, who want to see a less conflictual trajectory in China the chance to see that the United States is prepared and willing? And if, and of course, you know, Xi Jinping and his coterie choose not to take it, at least then the world will have known um, that it wasn't the United States that pushed us inexorably toward a conflict, that there was a real choice um, that, and perhaps in this case, you know, Beijing chose not to take. And that's really uh, critical. And I think there's a lot of work still to be done on our side uh, to make that choice that China faces uh, real. You know, Jessica, since you've left government, uh, what, six, seven months ago, you've become uh, sort of a, a rallying figure um, for the argument that you're making, basically a call for more nuanced moderation. Are you finding that people in power in in, in America and elsewhere are responding to what you're saying? So many people have, you know, come forward, not necessarily even to talk to me about it, but I hear echoes of this message, um, uh, you know, all across the U.S. kind of media environment. I've heard individually from people uh, inside and outside of the administration that they appreciate this call to think about, you know, what is it that we're competing for? Where is this all going? And and, and if we don't like where this trajectory is pointing, you know, what might we do today to imagine and work toward a different future and to push uh, Beijing and, and others who are, you know, also very much engaged in this tit for tat uh, to imagine an alternative. And so um, I think that there really is appetite for this. And part of, I think, the the dynamic of this out hawking one another means that there actually is much more space than there might have, uh, you know, appeared to be. Um, because once individuals start to, you know, speak up, then that creates space for others uh, who may not have been quite as sold on the, the most extreme, uh, you know, assessment of of China as an existential threat, or most completely sold on uh, the need for these various types of of punitive actions that aren't really kind of conditional or tailored to, to Beijing's behavior. You know, I think that it means that there are more and more people uh, speaking up, and I'm hopeful that collectively, because I certainly don't have all the answers, I hope that collectively that we can also come together across party lines to identify what is that future that we want to be leading uh, rather than solely that thing over there that we are trying to outcompete. Um, because ultimately, whether or not this actually ends up being a kind of a more cooperative or simply a less conflictual relationship with Beijing, I mean, the sad and, you know, the frank reality is that we are each other's largest uh, trading partners or among each other's largest trading partners. And we're not going to be able to meet our own objectives in the area of, you know, decarbonization, the, the green energy transition without continuing to utilize some degree of, uh, you know, inputs, uh, you know, from China, uh, Chinese companies. Um, they're just, we're just too integrated to, uh, you know, to be completely pulled apart. And so this idea that we're just going to, you know, defeat the other is just doesn't really square with the reality that we exist in, but also mm. our affirmative interests and the ones that we really need to uh, address uh, in order to make Americans, you know, safer and, and more prosperous and, and to leave to our children a more inhabitable world. This really is the most important issue in the world right now. Jessica Chen Weiss, it's a real pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much, Ravi. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time.
And that was Jessica Chen Weiss, a China scholar and professor at Cornell University. Next week, we're going to look at the latest in the war in Ukraine with former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Philip Breedlove. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, you can do that on foreignpolicy.com/live. Subscribers get to submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up. Use the code FP Live for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's editor in chief. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador. Where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound, and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window, and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters: the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown, and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones, supplies flew off the shelves of stores, Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries, and we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy, and that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world, like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction, taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life, allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful、uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. 
Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.